Welcome to the Cheryl Broderson Podcast, encouraging and equipping you through the study of God's Word. This is a podcast taken from the Joyful Life Bible Study at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. When Brian and I were a young couple, and I know that's hard to imagine, a lot of you are like, what? You were young? Yes, there was a time. Um, And we fellowshiped with a a group of um, young couples, and we were all having kind of our children together. And we had one couple that we were extremely close to. And um, in fact, Brian and this man had taught Bible studies. They had traded off. I had traded off with the wife. We were very, very close. And all of a sudden, there started to be some, I want to call it financial momentum in their lives. Uh, His career started to take off, and he started to work extra hours, and they bought a house, and things started coming together for them. And at that point, um, they started being absent, just absent. You know, um, she would be there when she taught, and then she wouldn't come the next week. She just started missing fellowship a lot, and he started missing fellowship a lot. And we had some, you know, I would call her, and things would be fine on the phone. And you don't want to go, where are you? What's going on? You'd just be like, you know, I, didn't, I haven't seen you lately. Oh, I know. <laughs> and, you know, she changed the subject. We had some friends that ran into them, and they said that they seemed to um, be drunk, that there was alcohol on their breath. And then after a a long absence, and they stopped answering our um, phone calls, she later told me, uh, she was actually having sangria parties and inviting some of the women, even from the Bible study, over for these sangria parties. No wonder the alcohol on the breath. But after a long absence, um, she told me that she turned to her husband and she looked at him and she said, remind me, how are we different again from the world? What's different in us? What what has happened? Where do we stand out? You know, in this secular job that they had kind of embraced that her husband had, they just started doing everything that all the other employees were doing. They, they started taking on that culture of all those who wanted to be wealthy and were pursuing that. The Christian life is meant to be a contrast, a contrast to this secular society around us. It is, a, it is by contrast, though, that Christians have the opportunity to shine, to get noticed, to share. Because people will recognize, like, well, why aren't you pursuing this? Why aren't you interested in this? Contrast is a good thing. It's a good thing to to stand out, to not look like everybody else. Jewelers like to display diamonds on black fabric. Why? Why? Because that's what brings out all the contrast. That's what brings out all the facets of the diamond. In Philippians 2.15, Paul writes that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And the NIV translates that word lights as stars. Stars in the sky. Now, in Paul's time, stars were a source of guidance. This, people would read the stars to know where they were supposed to go. Remember, it was the Magi that followed the star to find Jesus. So Christians, by shining in contrast to the culture, can actually direct people to Jesus. 
That's what we can do as we're contrasted. In Matthew 5.14, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. So again, a city provided refuge for people. So as we shine, as we're contrast to the secular society around us, we can direct people to Jesus and we can be that refuge that people are drawn to. You know, recently when I was going through the Psalms and then Proverbs, I realized that Psalms is a book of contradictions, as is Proverbs. You know, we'll talk about, you know, the ungodly. You know, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. But the godly man knows there's a God. Or Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. And, you know, the righteous is like a, a, the one who meditates in the word day and night. He's like a tree that is planted near the living water. So the difference between chaff and being a tree in Psalm 1, there's this contrast. And you'll see this contrast all throughout the Psalms. So Paul in 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 21, points to the contrast between the woman of God and others. There is meant to be a contrast. And the woman of God's life is in stark contrast to those in secular society in four specific ways in this passage. You could probably find other ways that were in contrast, but these four specific ways in our pursuits, in our perspective, in our priorities, and in our response. Paul ends this letter with this important contrast. But you, but, here's the contrast, you, O man of God. There has to be a contrast for the person who belongs to God, who claims God. And again, by contrast, we become a guide to finding Jesus and a light in a dark world. So the pursuit of the woman of God, first of all, it's seen in the things that she flees. Verse 11 you know, what all the other, what the world is running into, the Christian is like, not me, I'm running away from. You know, sometimes it might be like the newest movie that you're just like, mm. and you know, people are like, did you see? And you're like, no, kind of running away from that movie. Or, you know, the trends, you know, people are running into the trends and you're like, that's not a trend that I'll be practicing. That's not something that I'll be embracing. There's meant to be a contrast, a contrast. So they're in the things that we flee. Personally, I don't know, and I'm sure you feel the same way, I don't know what I'd do without a Heavenly Father. Like, what do people do who can't call on Jesus? What do they do? Like, when you can't say, can you help? When you hear bad news, or when you're waiting to see if something's going to turn out, or when those horrid thoughts start bombarding you right when you're trying to go to sleep. Who do you turn to? Who do you talk to? You know, I like this running conversation with the Lord. I like to tell him everything. Who do you complain to about your husband when you don't have Jesus? 
especially if he's your pastor too. I don't know what people do without it, but I can trust that I'm going to be taken care of and that even the bad things that happen, even the most annoying, horrific things that happen, God will use for my good. He will work them together. But the non-believer, by contrast, he must watch out for himself. He has no divine warnings about bad investments, no divine interruptions, no hope of sorrow turning to joy, and no hope of heaven, no hope that someday all the right wrongs will be made right, that everything will be recompensed. He has no hope. So the non-believer must pursue money and riches and superiority and gain and all the pleasure he can in this life because he has no hope for the future, no hope. In fact, those women out there, they have to try to look young at 60 and 70 because, you know, this is it. This is, I don't know how I would handle aging if I didn't have Jesus. I just don't know how you do it. If I didn't hope that this mortal would take on immortality and this corruption would take on incorruption, I mean, I think every line would just drive me crazy and every weakness. But to know, you know what? This is only temporary. Someday. I'm going to run and not grow weary. I'm going to walk and not faint. And I'm going to look so good, so, so good. But so are you. So the woman of God, she pursues righteousness. And let me say this, that when we say righteousness, we're not talking about moral superiority. We've gotten the wrong idea about righteousness. And we tend to think of moral superiority. I want you to think of it in this way. Righteousness is rightness with God. Rightness with God. The woman of God is always realigning her life with God and God's purposes. Always realigning to make sure that she is right with God. I read one time about Spurgeon that he was walking across the street and all these Remember, this is Spurgeon, so we're talking 1800s. All these buggies and carriages are just barely missing him because he's walking across the street in London, and he's pausing in the middle. And when he got to the other side, one of his parishioners happened to be there, and they said, you know, Pastor, what were you doing in the middle of the street? And he said, I felt a cloud pass between my fellowship with God, my Father, and myself, and I couldn't take another step till I made it right. That's what rightness with God is, that righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ. So this is our pursuit, to always be right with God, to be in alignment. Do you, you know, when something goes wrong with my life, I always say, okay, Lord, am I out of alignment in any way? Is there something that you need to correct, to fix? I need it. Secondly, The woman of God is always pursuing godliness. This is the ultimate WWJD. What would Jesus do? It's seeking to be more and more like Christ in heart, in action, in motivation, and word. And this comes in two ways. 
The first, by giving Jesus more and more access to your heart and life. When I go awry, I know it's hard to believe, um, but when I have those moments, I like to stop and say, Lord, obviously that's a place where I've claimed rulership and I wanna give up my rulership and give it to you. Jesus, can you be king over that attitude? Can you be king over that thought? Can you be king over that propensity that I have? Will you just come and you take rulership there? It's another place to give to Jesus. And secondly, the more time you spend with Jesus, the more you will be like Jesus. Isn't that great? I mean, I know the more time you spend with someone, the more you take on their attributes and their traits. I've told you this before, but when I met Brian, I used to speed when I drive. Everywhere I would speed. Then Brian was so slow when he drove. I mean, he drove the speed limit of all things. And he was always like in the slow lane of the freeway and everyone's always honking at him and passing him. And now I am such a slow driver and he speeded up. It's like, what's happened to us? Anyway, I have this thing, it's probably my age, I hate speed. I mean, I used to like to go as fast as I could on my bicycle or, you know, whatever, or in the car, and now I'm like, could you slow down? Could you slow down? Could the whole world just slow down? I just would appreciate it. Then we grow in faith. We pursue faith. And, you know, faith comes as we learn more and more about the majesty and greatness of God, doesn't it? When I feel my faith flagging, I like to read a book on um, anatomy or nature. There's a book called um, Listen to the Animals. I think it's in the chapel store. And it's just how uniquely each um, animal was made. And it's written by a scientist. It's fantastic. Another great book is called It Couldn't Just Happen. And it talks about how finely tuned our universe is and has all these different um, examples and chapters. And it just, it's a children's book. Both of those were children's books. I love children's books because it makes it understandable. Um, And then there's the video. How many have seen the video, How Great Is Our God? Is that like a faith builder? Every time I see it and you... You realize that, you know, beetle geese is just like so huge and just God made it. I was um, at the dentist's office on Tuesday and I had to get x-rays, which are always so fun. But um, my dentist, Dr. Atsu, he was saying, he goes to this church, he was saying to me, Cheryl, did you realize, because I grind my teeth so I have to wear, I don't know why I'm telling you all this stuff about me, (laughs) but I have to wear a mouth guard at night. And he was telling me that women's mouths can exert 450 pounds of pressure. When you bite down, you didn't know you were that strong, did you? 450 pounds of pressure when you bite down. And he said, you know, your teeth are having to take that impact. And of course, that's, I was clenching at night, so I have to wear this guard. But he said, men, can, when they clamp down, it's 650 pounds of pressure. Is that crazy? You know, I remember this one time, Brian took a bite of his sandwich and he accidentally, don't ask me how, got his finger in there. 
And I remember he was like, oh, I think it's broken. Ah. And I'm thinking, oh, you big baby, you know? And then I realized, wow, that was 650 pounds of pressure coming down on that finger. Another way that I love to um, pursue faith is to count my blessings. Doesn't that just put everything like, oh my goodness, you know, my fingers are working, I get shoes, I've got a bed that I absolutely adore sleeping in, I've got this wonderful pillow, I mean, just all the little things, all the blessings. I've got a husband that loves me even though he bites his fingers, I don't care. But as we count our blessings and then recounting God's faithfulness in our lives, as we go back and retrace, I journal. And sometimes I'll go back and read the journals like when my kids were young. And I realize all the places and ways that God has been so faithful. Remember the children of Israel? Their problem was that they forgot, they forgot, they forgot, they forgot. And we need to remember, and one of the ways to remember journaling or recounting, just even at the end of the day saying, Lord, let's talk about how faithful you've been today. I got breakfast, I got lunch. Lord, you're so faithful. Fellowship. Fellowship grows and increases your faith. As you talk to others about what God is doing and God pulls them through. I think about Daniel in the lion's den and how... Um, King Darius came and said, Daniel, is, is the God you serve able to deliver you from the lions? And out came this voice, oh, king, stop being worried. My God closed all the mouths of the lions. You know, sometimes our friends are going into the lion's den, and we who are praying, we're like, Lord, you know, in fact, it said that the king was up all night worrying about Daniel. He probably started praying. And in the morning going, and you know, with our friends, you're like, is the God that we serve, was he able to deliver you from the lion's den? And then when you hear the story, oh, our, my God was more than able. Do you ever have someone that like you've been worried about, you've been praying for, because they didn't tell you the end of the story? You know what, I, they're like, pray for me, this is really bad. And so like for months, you're like so stressed out about them, you're praying for them all the time. You run into them and you're like, oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, that was like in an hour, it was all worked out. I've been fine ever since. You're like, that's why I wear my mouth guard, because of you. <laughs> and then another is heroes of the faith. Oh, when, you know, I know the Bible, I love the Bible, I love the heroes of the faith, but sometimes we need to know of more contemporary heroes of the faith. What other men and women are doing for Jesus and how God is with them. I would recommend this really great podcast called Women Worth Knowing. You'll like the, you know, people on there, but just to hear those stories. I know we interviewed Pam Markey on it and just how God is using this remarkable Markey for his glory is just wondrous. Then we're to pursue love. And, and this is twofold love as, let me read the words of Jesus in Matthew 22, 37 through 39. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So 
who can say, I love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, all of it? it no. Jesus could. But we can pray for that. We can say, Lord, help me. Work in me to love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is agape. This is a divine love that we can pray in. Also, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Where Paul talks in Romans chapter 5 about the evidence of the Spirit in us and on us is the love of Christ being shed in our, abroad in our hearts. It's the love that we feel for others. When I, when my love connection is, is broken or diminishing, I have to go back and I pray and I say, Lord, help me to love. You know, spirit, where has there been some kind of disconnect? I love Hebrews where it says, let the love of God um, flow through you. Let I'm paraphrasing, but not let the love after that. I'm paraphrasing. But the part about let or allow, God's got all this love. The spirit is filled with love. This is to be our pursuit that we should want to love God, want to love others, want to demonstrate that love, want to pursue love for others, not to pursue enmity. Is that so different than our cancel culture? You know what stood out to everybody in the 60s about Calvary Chapel and the Jesus People Movement? The love. The love. Everyone, whether it was Time Magazine or these reporters that came over from France, they said, we've never felt so loved. We have never felt such the energy of love. It was the love. In the early church, one of the writers about the early church, and he was a secular writer, wrote about how greatly the early church loved each other. Love, this is to be our pursuit, love. And the next one that's all our favorite, pursue patience. And we all know how patience comes, right, James? By way of trials. You know what you learn through trials is that God comes through, right? And so he expands the time, the waiting period. You know, when you're young and you pray, it's like somebody taps you on the shoulder and says, answered. You're like, hallelujah, God, you move fast. You got my age, you pray, and you're like 10 years later. It's answered, or there's movement. But God expands the waiting time. I taught kindergarten, and I remember being so excited and taking a, another course right before I started. And they said, we want to tell you the true purpose of a kindergarten teacher. And I thought it was to add teddy bears or maybe teach them to read. And they said, it's to expand their attention time so that their first grade teachers can do everything that you've omitted. Like, it's all about the first grade teacher. I just have to teach them to listen to stories and to listen longer and to sit longer and to be able to... Um, be at their desks longer, to be able to write longer. I'm just expanding their time. And so you start with short stories at the beginning of the year, and the stories get longer and longer and longer until your stories are a good three minutes at the end of the year, all that time. But expanding, 
And that's what patience is. It's expanding the waiting time, the waiting time. And we need that patience to wait for God. He is working not to say, well, God didn't do this, so I'm going to do this. It's waiting, waiting for others to come to their senses. Some of you have prodigals, and they have to just get certain things out of their system. They've got all these things in their life that they think you've kept them from, and that they'll be the you know, answer to their life. And isn't God so gracious that he lets them try them, that he lets them see on their own that these things are worthless? Like the prodigal father, he waits. He waits. In Isaiah 30, 18, it says the Lord waits that he might be gracious to us. And then we know trials help us to grow in patience because there is an end to every trial. We do reach the destination. God does work. James, in the last chapter, you thought I was going to go to James 1, James points to the farmer as an example of patience. Then we pursue gentleness, meekness. And someone said that meekness is power under control humility, approachability, kindness. We pursue eternal life. We pursue a good confession, verses 13 and 14, a good, a good testimony that we've stood for Jesus, that we've had allegiance to God, even as Jesus did not waver in front of Pontius Pilate. Though Jesus could have extricated himself, I mean, think of it, he could have looked at Pilate and said, toast, <laughs> and toast to those people and toast to these people. But instead, he stood firm in the resolve. He didn't buckle under. He stood. I love, I love John chapter 18 and 19. Behold the man. Behold your king. The good confession. Next, we go to the perspective of the woman of God, verses 14 through 16. First thing. Our perspective is Jesus is coming. And someday, Jesus will rule over all the governments of this world. And in that day, there will be such peace that a child can reach into a cobra hole and pull out that cobra and say, gotcha and be totally safe. That the, the lion and the cow will eat straw together. We don't expect, our perspective is, we don't expect too much or a lot of righteousness from the governments of men because we realize they're ruled by men. On the other hand, we can't wait till Jesus comes and sets up his government on earth and our perspective that Jesus is coming at just the right time. He is coming at just the right time. Next, the perspective of the woman of God is that Jesus is blessed. He is the blessed one of God. He is the rewarded, the one who brings God pleasure, the beloved. He is the only potentate the only one 
endued with real and true power. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. He's got the power. He is the king of kings. He's above every king of this world. He is the Lord of lords, the ultimate boss, the one who has the final say. He alone has immortality. He owns it. He is the alpha and the omega. He dwells in unapproachable light. Jesus is so highly exalted on the right hand of God, so righteous that no human in this present condition can see or know the full glory of Jesus, where he is, what he is doing. Jesus is the one who is worthy of all honor, and that's what we'll be singing out in heaven about his honor and glory. You alone are worthy to take the scroll and loose the seal thereof. Jesus holds everlasting power. And then he says, amen. This is so true, so absolute, so sure, so certain to the woman of God. This is her perspective This is her worldview. Jesus is coming and he is so highly exalted, so powerful. Jesus, you can deal with this. You can take care of this. I can entrust this to you. These truths affect every decision we make. They they guard us continually. As it says in Psalm 36, night, in your light, we see light. Another perspective is on riches, that we don't see riches as I'm going to get as much as I can. But the perspective of the woman of God is that riches are a gift or an entrustment by God. They do not make us superior, and they, without them, we are not inferior We do not trust riches. We don't believe that riches are going to give us what we want or satisfy. We believe that that satisfaction can only come from God. And so riches are to be used for doing good, giving to others and sharing. Finally, our priority is to trust in the living God as the source, the cause, the reason for all we enjoy, all things freely. We don't need money. We got all things freely to enjoy. You know, I thought, I'm so thankful I'm not rich. Rich people don't enjoy going to TJ Maxx and getting a really good deal. You know, rich people have to worry about security. We can just go walk barefoot on the beach. And I'm thankful I don't live at the beach because when I see the ocean, I get so like excited, like there it is, I haven't seen you in a while. Those people get up and go, oh, the ocean. No, aren't you so glad you're not rich? We trust in the living God, every good gift. We're so thankful for every good gift. I'm so glad I'm not like Bobby Flay and everything turning out really well when I cook or bake because when something turns out really good, I'm like, praise the Lord. This is so good. I'm thrilled. It's a priority for us to store for ourselves a good foundation for the time to come. 
when we have eternal life, we are working on treasures in heaven, Matthew 6, 20. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. We've got a bigger account than George Apple guy, him. See, isn't that great? I can't even remember his name and he's got all that money. He has no treasure in heaven and we've got way more. Finally, and I said finally before, but I didn't mean it. Now I mean it. The response. The woman of God does not respond to opposition and people and trials as non-believers. Our response to these things is so different. Verse 12, we fight. I know I'm going backwards, but I'm really going forwards. We fight. It's a contrast. We fight the good fight. We fight the real fight, the, the fight that counts, not with flesh and blood. We don't fight against people. We fight with the motivators, the powers, the spirits that are tempting and m- manipulating and compelling and pushing people. That's where we fight. We go to the source. We go right to the source. And then we fight with real weapons, not guns, not words, not strife, not rebellion. We fight with spiritual weapons of prayer, God's word, faith, and love. Kathy was saying in our leaders' meeting that prayer is the missile that never misses its mark. This is what we fight with. We fight by resistance to the lesser wars. We fight by resistance. No, I'm not going to get involved in that. Um, I think of Nehemiah, who they were trying to draw him away from building the wall. And he said, no, why should I leave this work of God to go and meet with you or hide myself in the temple or try to protect myself? I'm working for God. So we fight by resisting the lesser wars. I I think of, too, um, David, when he was fleeing from Saul, and he invited himself and his men to Nabal's party. And he sent some of his men to Nabal with the message, you know, we've guarded your sheep, and so we want to be part of your shearing party where all the food is. And Nabal sent back just the rudest reply. I don't know you. You're, you're like a flea. You're a bothersome pest to me. I, I don't owe you anything. And when David got that message, he armed up and he was ready to attack Nabal. Abigail, Nabal's wife, found out. And she, being the wise woman she was, she loaded up lots of food on her donkeys and she set off herself to meet with David. And when she met with David and David saw the food, which is always a good thing for a man to see, when David saw the food and Abigail said to him, Nabal's not worth fighting because someday all the promises of God are going to come true and you are going to be king. And in that day, you don't want to look back and have this blight on your record. This, he's not worth it. That's what it is to fight the good fight. 
We don't want the blight on our record of these lesser fights. You know, who cares if they took your parking place and you were waiting there first? Who cares if they cut in front of you on the freeway and almost killed you like yesterday where I went? You know, it's not the fight that we want to be involved in. It's not the fight. I was reading this, this story that this man got really upset at this car just driving, you know, erratically and he made a gesture at it only to realize it was his neighbor. We don't want those kind of issues. We fight by resisting the lesser wars, not reacting, but responding. We guard the testimony of Jesus that we hold. They're looking at us to see Jesus. We don't want to lose that. We avoid profane and vain babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. We just walk away. I'm not getting involved. It's not my discussion. We avoid it. We don't fight in the wrong arenas. We don't let Satan draw us into his fray with ugly words, violence, doubting, slander, meanness, and gossip. Those who are lured into Satan's arena stray concerning the faith. Responding only happens when our pursuits, our perspective, and priorities are right. It's only then that we can respond. We go back to what is it we are really after, our pursuits. What is it that we really want at the end of the day? What is it? Who is it we are for? Who are we represented? Who is our great love? Jesus. That is our perspective. And then our priority. What is the most important thing to us? What is the most important thing of all? And that would be pleasing Jesus, our priority. And when we have our pursuit and our perspective and our priority in line. We don't react to situations. We can respond. So the woman of God's life will be in stark contrast with the OC wives. Bottom line, we're not going to look like them. We're not going to act like them. We're not going to have their wealth or social standing or their enhancements, but our pursuit, our perspective, our priorities, and the way we respond to conflict, opposition, and everything else going on in our world will reflect Jesus, will radiate Jesus, will draw people to Jesus and direct people to Jesus. That's what it is to be a woman of God. And I've got two minutes to get in the car. Father, we thank you ah, that we can live in contrast. And we pray that you would work in us such a contrast by our love, by our priorities and our pursuits and our perspectives, that we would respond rather than react as we walk and know you in Jesus' name. Amen.